ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so I think it's been pretty well documented that traditional energy has been the best performing sector so far this year. You look at something like the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, ticker XLE, that's up over 40% year to date. And I've covered many of the drivers of this over the past several months, from the Russia-Ukraine war to supply shortages in other parts of the world, even some underproduction here in the U.S. And I also think you can make the case this entire space was uh, undervalued to begin with, right? It was a value play, which some would say it still is. But the bottom line is companies involved in things like oil and natural gas have been top performers. Now, because of that, I think this caught some ESG ETFs a bit off sides, right? Because ESG ETFs tend to exclude or at least minimize exposure to the traditional energy space. And I think this is one of the reasons ESG ETFs as a whole have come under the microscope this year. There's been a lot more scrutiny and discussion around what ESG ETFs hold and really what their value proposition is overall. However, more recently, guess what's been making a comeback in performance? Clean energy. The uh, darling from 2020 is back in the spotlight over the past few months. If you look at something like the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, ticker ICLN, that's up about 35% over the past three months, while XLE is down 4%. Joining me this week are two individuals to cover both sides of this. So first up will be our resident ESG ETF expert, Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. She's going to discuss the recent move in clean energy and what's been going on with ESG ETFs overall. Uh, we'll talk flows, 
performance, uh, interest on the Vetify platform. We'll cover it all. And that'll be the perfect counterbalance to my next guest, Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder of Strive Asset Management, who last week they launched their first ETF, the Strive U.S. Energy ETF, ticker DRILL, D-R-L-L, which that ticker alone should uh, give you an idea on how Vivek and Strive view the world. And I should also note this ETF is already over $100 million, uh, in in assets. But I'll just tell you, Strive believes politics have become way too intertwined with investing. So, for example, with U.S. energy companies, Strive believes there's been a significant underinvestment here, in large part because of politically charged ESG mandates imposed by larger asset managers. And Strive is seeking to change that by building a firm to compete against those larger asset managers and ultimately wield power through proxy voting. They want to enact change in corporate boardrooms. Their goal is to focus on what they call excellence capitalism. So we're going to get into all of this with both Laura and Vivek. Now, to close this week, I'll switch gears a bit, and I could do an hour-long podcast with this guest alone. I'll be joined by Andrew Beer, managing member at Dynamic Beta Investments, who offers an ETF that I think is in the running for ETF of the year if things keep going the way they have. That's the IMGP DBI Managed Future Strategy ETF, ticker DBMF. I'm going to have Andrew explain what a managed future strategy is, why it's something you may want to consider in a portfolio, and how he's looking to disrupt the traditional hedge fund space overall. So definitely stick around for that conversation. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, how have you been? Great having you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so it's very uh, interesting. Traditional energy was getting all of the headlines earlier this year, and deservedly so, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But but here recently, clean energy ETFs are starting uh, to run again. And you heard me allude to this at the top. If you remember back to 2020, which uh, seems like a decade ago, <laughs> one of the more popular ETFs was the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, ticker ICLN. That was up over 140% that year. And then it started out uh, okay last year, but then things quickly deteriorated and it ended the year down close to 25%. It's really had sort of a a similar ride to the ARK Innovation ETF, if you think about it. But even into this year, ICLN was down about 20% year to date in May. And now this thing is actually positive for the year, up about 12%. And of course, the S&P 500 is down about 10%. Uh, And then you look across the clean energy ETF space overall, they're experiencing something very similar. Like I look at the Invesco solar ETF, ticker TAN, uh, I think that's another good example. But to to begin, let's start bigger picture here, and then we can certainly drill into some specific ETFs. What has been driving this recent uh, upswing? Oh, sure. Well, so there's there's one big, huge driver that's driving uh, the outperformance here in clean, clean energy. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. 
right? So clean energy stocks weren't doing that hot throughout most of the year, but they began to rally specifically when Joe Manchin announced that he was going to support the bill, uh, the most ambitious climate climate bill in history, really, uh, earmarking some $374 billion uh, towards various climate and clean energy objectives all up and down the supply chain, and therefore setting up a really juicy growth opportunity for uh, the clean energy ETF or the clean energy stocks in this space. So, you know, couple that with um, some positive earnings reports coming out of key players this past quarter, like for solar and Enphase and some other ones, and then uh, some stability in the interest rate uncertainty that had been kind of plaguing uh, not just clean energy, but the entire market for several months in 2022. And I think you're looking at a real setup for for an opportunity in clean energy. If you look back over the ride that clean energy stocks have had, I, I just mentioned, you look back to 2020, one of the best performing areas by far, mm-hmm. uh, when you look at ICLN and TAN, and then last year, things weren't so hot. Uh, and, and now again, things are starting to run. Can you offer some context here? Why why is that? Why Why did we see those ups and downs? Oh, sure. So, so I clean it. Let's see. I clean. It's been often said that, you know, the past uh, uh, fall for this ETF is uh, because it was a political casualty. Right. And uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Right. So certainly ambivalence in Congress towards the climate agenda for the past six months or so. It's the reality is it played a large part in dampening enthusiasm for the clean energy space. But lest we forget, we also had a major pandemic on our hands for the past two and a half years. And in 2021, that's when the supply chain chickens came home to roost, right? So it manifested in difficulties in sourcing raw materials for clean energy stocks, particularly in the U.S., where they source so much of their stuff overseas. And so, you know, companies couldn't deliver on orders, consumers and industries, they couldn't continue building out. And so it just was a ripple effect, right? So, you know, that weighed on clean energy, it weighed on clean energy ETFs for sure. Um, But if you actually look at the numbers uh, for raw investment worldwide into clean energy, not just in the US, but worldwide, global investment actually spiked last year. Uh, Bloomberg releases this yearly clean energy report, and they found that investment in energy transition stocks and low-carbon energy transition stocks, it went um, upwards yes, uh, last year by 27%. So I think, look, clean energy is a space that had grown so far, so fast in 2020 that there was bound to be some retracement, right? And I think when that happened, investors uh, pulled their money to the sidelines to kind of wait for a more favorable uh, valuation picture. But, you know, there have actually been a couple of attempts by clean energy stocks to recover since the beginning of 2021, Um, first in October 2021, and then um, January to March this year. They got knocked down by, you know, politicians playing football, and then again by the Fed hiking interest rates in March. Now they're back up. My guess, I think we're probably going to see the space keep rising for a little while because the fundamentals are truly strong. The next big test, though, is going to be the midterm elections. You mentioned that uh, perhaps we have some more interest rate clarity. And I know there's a narrative out there that clean energy stocks tend to behave much more like growthy tech stocks, right? That they're uh, risk on, Mm -hmm. they're they're higher beta. 
Do you think that's fair? And do you think that's a reason why we've seen this bounce recently with, with growth stocks coming back to life, which you know tend to react much better to a, a more benign interest rate environment? Is that a fair characterization? I, I agree. Clearly, the Inflation Reduction Act is the biggest driver here. I think you could also make the case the Russia-Ukraine war and and people looking at alternative sources of energy, that's driving interest in this space. But what about just the broader environment around interest rates? Oh, absolutely. I think clean energy stocks are kind of quintessentially a growth play, right? Because the expectation is there is that, um, you know, it, it's going to pay off, uh, you know, these high valuations are going to pay off down the road and huge earnings and so on. So um, they also tend to really benefit from low interest rates so that these companies can take on a lot of debt, help finance big expansions, be it you know more solar farms or wind turbines or um, you know smart energy grids or whatever, and that takes a lot of up upfront capital, um, you know less than operating expenses, right? So when rates rise as they did in March, these companies in the clean energy space can stumble because now they have to pay a higher interest rate on any debt they're taking out. But I think a lot of that uncertainty around the interest rate um, environment has has faded from the market. Like we kind of know what to expect now, and so um, you know it's it's helped growth stocks. It's helped clean energy stocks kind of stabilize and and move upwards. You know, it. I think it's interesting uh, sometimes the parallels between clean energy and the tech space, right? Because. If you think about it, clean energy really is a tech play at heart, not just because there's software and code that goes into the operation of, of you know, clean energy uh, you know, farms and, and turbines and stuff. But, um, you know, they, a lot of these uh, devices use the same materials that go into semiconductors. Uh, and circuit boards. So it's you know same silicon and all of that is used in fuel cells and photo, uh, you know, photovoltaic arrays and electric vehicles and so on. So whatever um, is happening in the tech space uh, from a supply side is going to influence clean energy as well. Just to drive home the performance here, I mentioned the performance of ICLN over the past couple of years. If you look at two of the other largest clean energy ETFs by AUM, the Invesco Solar Tan ETF, which I mentioned, TAN, mm-hmm. uh, or Solar ETF, that's up nearly, or it was up nearly 235% in 2020, was then down 25% last year, and is now up 16% this year. If you look at the First Trust NASDAQ Clean Edge Green Energy ETF, ticker QCLN, that was up 184% in 2020, down 3% last year, and now up 1% this year. So I think that gives you a good idea in terms of what we've seen um, I'm curious, Laura, it, what are you seeing on the Betify platform right now? Like, is this performance translating to more interest in clean energy ETFs? Are you seeing an uptick yet? I am so glad you asked me that because it's actually really interesting and exciting. We don't normally see uh, you know, stuff like this happen, I think. So on the Vetify platform, we have... A number of ways that investors can do research on various ETFs. They can. Uh, we also have our, our own classification system, which kind of breaks ETFs into various categories, and you can search by those categories and so on. It's actually a very popular way for folks to interact with our platform. So, the alternative energies equities uh, category has been just zooming up the ranks of our most popular ETF categories this month. So far in August, it's the fifth most popular ETF category on our platform after several months of being around like 
40 and 50. So look, I realize we're only halfway through August and, you know, there's a lot that can change in just two weeks or so, but, you know, we're looking at levels of engagement around the, the alt energy stock space, ETF space, haven't been that way since April, since the onset of that Russia-Ukraine war that you mentioned earlier. So iClean is now the 16th most research fund on our site. TAN is 18th. So, uh, you know, look, something we, we like to emphasize is that engagement data is not flows data, and it tends to be, you know, maybe a leading indicator, right? So you see the research pick up, then you see investors allocating based on the research that they've done. Uh, and right now, we are seeing more engagement into the space rather than flows. However, this engagement bump is so significant and it's accelerating that I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a rebound in flows headed into clean energy ETFs in the coming months. I mean, you really do not normally see data this clear and obvious and sharp in the engagement uh, data unless something real is brewing. Out of curiosity, what does this look like for traditional energy ETFs? Like I mentioned, XLE, are you still seeing traffic here given the year-to-date performance? Uh, or are you starting to see that fall off? Like how does clean energy or how do clean energy ETFs compare to fossil fuel ETFs? Yeah, absolutely. So so there's no um, noticeable fall off in the uh, traditional fossil fuel energy space, right? So energy, it's, it's continuously, uh, perennially one of the more popular uh, site or uh, topics on our site. Uh, and we have the ability to you know, organize by lists of ETFs. So list of crude oil ETFs, that's consistently among the top 10 lists on our site. Um, XLE is one of the most popular tickers month after month, year after year. It's in the top 20. We have a whole energy infrastructure channel on our site. You know, interest in traditional energy-related content is very strong among our readership. It hasn't waned which is, I think, what kind of makes these engagement trends about clean energy ETFs so fascinating because we do a lot of we do a lot of polling of advisors. And we're, I mean, we're constantly taking snap polls of what advisors are doing, what they think of the markets, how they're allocating right now. And polls from the last you know, couple of months have indicated to us that advisors increasingly don't see energy as an either-or decision between clean energy on one side and fossil fuel energy on the other side. They're they're starting to see exposures uh, to both as ingredients in a diversified energy portfolio. So I think it's entirely possible. You're going to continue to see engagement and flows strengthen for both fossil fuel ETFs and clean energy ETFs. I think that's really well said. And, you know, on that note, of flows and maybe how the interest that you're seeing, especially around clean energy ETFs, could translate into flows. Uh, I'll be joined here momentarily by Vivek Ramaswamy, who I I know you're aware is building what some are calling an anti-ESG ETF lineup. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly how he would characterize it, but, you know, I I think you get the idea. And I think about the timing of Strive coming to market here. And you look, I mean, there does continue to be a lot of debate around ESG ETFs as a whole. Uh, You may have seen this. I tweeted this out last week. Bloomberg's Katie Greifield noted that flows into ESG ETFs have only been about $4 billion so far this year after two straight years of over $30 billion. So there has been a very clear drop off. And I think one way you could interpret that is maybe some investors are second guessing, mixing Uh, ESG considerations with their investments. I'm just curious, any 
thoughts on what we have seen out of flows? And should there be a distinction between, say, broad ESG ETFs and then the ETFs we're focused on here today, clean energy ETFs, just in terms of flows? Yeah, so a couple things, right? One, it's it's true that on a year-over-year basis, we are seeing far fewer net inflows into ESG funds than we did uh, last year. We're also in a more challenged market environment, right? So advisors aren't al- allocating to growthy equity ETFs right now. They're not even allocating to equity ETFs in the same way that they were last year. Um, they've been more focused on you know, inflation defense, like commodities, uh, building up fixed income portfolios, and so on. If you look at the flows numbers from last month, only $14 billion went in, of new net assets went into equity ETFs, both U.S. and international, last month. And about $1 billion of that was in ESG ETFs, right? So if you look at it through that lens, ESG ETFs are actually kind of punching above their weight class right now. So which ETFs right now in you know, the past month or so have been seeing the most inflows? You mentioned TAN. That's brought in uh, over the past 30 days about $322 million. Um, but it's not just clean energy ETFs seeing the bump, right? So I know that we're talking clean energy stocks here, but EA, EAGG, that's the iShares ESG aggregate bond ETF, that brought in about $211 million over the past 30 days. Wisdom Trees China ex-state-owned enterprises fund, that's XSOE. That brought in um, close to 100 million. Um, Crane Shares is carbon uh, California Carbon Allowance ETF. That's KCCA. That brought in about 60 million, and that's carbon, which is clean energy, but not a clean energy stocks play, right? So, you know, the rebound in flows that we're seeing um, and, and interest that we're seeing isn't necessarily concentrated on just the clean energy ETF space. We're seeing flows, uh, at least over the past month, going into a range of products, including these broad-based core asset allocation funds from iShares and Nuveen and Vanguard and State Street and so on. And um, also a few targeted social uh, thematic slices in the market and, and renewable or clean energy thematic slices. So it's kind of a broad tide, I'd say. And now it really only remains to see to be seen if it's going to lift all the boats in the space, you know, or if it's going to um, the interest is going to concentrate into the the clean energy um, space into the form of flows. No, 100 percent. I mean, I think, you know, I try to cover just about every ETF story that's out there. And I think this ESG ETF story is one that I'm maybe most fascinated to watch for the remainder of the year, just because there are several tailwinds in the space now. Um, you are seeing the interest, as you mentioned, on the Vetify platform. It's starting to translate a little bit into flows. You have performance there. So you have this recipe that sets up well. And, you know, my, my I guess, somewhat criticism of the space is there's just been so much media hype and attention around it. I think fund companies pushing this, and I'm not quite sure investors want it, but but we'll see, right? I mean, we have we have a pretty good setup here, and it'll be interesting to see if there is the uh, the follow through from from investors to your point. But Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Excellent <laughs> stuff as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. 
Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. I'm now joined by Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder of Strive Asset Management, who last week, they launched their first ETF, the Strive U.S. Energy ETF, ticker DRILL, great ticker, D-R-L-L. This is the first in what is expected to be a number of ETFs offered by Strive. And what's unique about their approach is they're seeking to make an impact in corporate boardrooms through proxy voting. And not exactly the type of uh, impact you're used to hearing about over the past several years with a focus on ESG. So Strive is emphasizing what they call excellence capitalism. And Vivek is now on the line with me. Vivek, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, good to be on. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So look, let's start bigger picture, and then we'll certainly get into the new ETF and your future plans in the space. So you co-founded Strive earlier this year, and I want to read your mission here. So your mission is to, quote, restore the voices of everyday citizens in the American economy by leading companies to focus on excellence over politics. So let's start there. What does that mean, excellence over politics? Well, look, it means that a lot of asset managers over the last half decade have adopted social and political agendas that they foist onto the companies that they invest in. I mean, you take companies like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, managing together over $21 trillion, just those three firms. And and what they're doing is they're using the money of everyday citizens to take large positions in public companies and then to force those public companies to adopt social and political agendas that most of the everyday citizens, the owners of capital, do not agree with. So that's a gap. It's, It's a problem. It demanded a solution. That's why... I co-founded Strive, and the thing we're doing is actually pretty simple. We're offering exposure to the market, but we're delivering a different voice and vote to those boardrooms, where the thing that we demand of companies is to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to their customers with the sole goal of maximizing shareholder value without regard to any other social, political, or cultural agenda. And and we think a lot of Americans want that, and that option doesn't explicitly exist in a mainstream way today. So that's what we're creating. Let let me ask you this. You mentioned everyday citizens. Do you think everyday citizens or investors would be surprised to learn how their shares are voted? Like, I wonder how many people are even aware how this entire process works. I think they would be shocked, is the answer. Not just surprised, but shocked. And, And I know this because as we educate people across the country, as I, you know, even in the book that I wrote last year, began to educate people across the country during my book tour, it was nothing short of shock that their own money was being used by someone else to advance social and political agendas that they deeply disagreed with themselves. And my view is whether or not you agree with those agendas, ESG link agendas, environmental causes, social causes, fighting systemic racism, combating climate change, whatever the issue may be, those may be important issues. They need to be resolved through the political process where every citizen's voice and vote counts equally. But part of the promise of American capitalism is companies that focus exclusively on delivering products that lift all people up. 
and by the way, have an apolitical private sector that bridges us together, that binds us together as one people across the lines of partisan politics and identity politics. So ironically, when you politicize the private sector, that actually leads to even more social division. And at the end of the day, we decided we needed to start with the one sector that had been, in my view, most damaged by the demands of the ESG movement. That was the U.S. energy sector, where systematic underinvestment in oil and gas production has contributed to this massive supply-demand imbalance for energy in the United States and around the world that U.S. energy companies could actually help solve. They could address it. They could seize that as a business opportunity if they were unshackled, unrestrained by these ESG handcuffs that have been imposed on them by their large asset manager firms and shareholders. And so that's why we thought it was important to bring a different voice to the table in the U.S. energy sector, telling these companies that it's okay to drill, to frack, to do more of each, to produce more energy, whatever allows you to be the most successful over the long run without regard to these short-term ESG demands. And, and what I've been pleased about is how receptive the energy sector and their executives and their employee bases are to this message. I actually spoke last week to one of the largest energy conferences in the country, the Intercom Conference in Denver. And you know, I mean, they gave a standing ovation at the end of the speech, which was interesting to me because many of these companies have adopted ESG constraints. And so it was a bit of a mystery that it had a positive of a reception as it did. But it quickly became clear to me why, which is that most of the employees and executives in the oil and gas industry agree with our message, but they have been restrained by the top public shareholders of their companies, like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard, who have effectively constrained their ability to be able to produce more energy in a way that solves the energy crisis and makes those companies more successful. So that's what we're aiming to fix. Vivek, why do you think that is? You know, obviously, politics has a nasty tendency, I think, to seep into just about every aspect of our lives. But how or why do you think politics became so intertwined with investing and asset management? And why, why has this become a much bigger talking point now? Because I know from my perspective, this entire topic of ESG has become much more prevalent over the past several years. Why is that? What, what drove that? Yeah, so look, I think I mean, this is what I wrote a book about, so it's not, it's not a simple answer. But I think one answer goes back to the 2008 financial crisis, where what happened then is greed is good as a mantra got indicted upon the public court of public opinion. And there was a demand for a new direction for American capitalism. And that's when a lot of the ESG business models really thrived, where they said, you know what, we're going to provide a different direction for capitalism to say that now it's not just about making products for serv- and, and providing services for profit, but also advancing other social agendas to make the world a better place. It may have began in an earnest and well-intentioned place, but that proved to be a pretty good marketing strategy for firms like BlackRock and State Street. And what they did is they realized that actually the more they signaled their virtue, the more capital they were able to raise. And then large pension fund systems like CalPERS in California and the state of New York started demanding and saying that, you know what, we're, no, we're only going to do business with firms that make these commitments, that sign on to the Climate Action 100 Plus Network's statement. And so then they started doing more of it. And it actually ended up becoming a profitable business model for them because they charge, you know, for example, BlackRock charges fees on the number of assets they manage. So the more assets they manage, the better. But what they did in the process is after they got so big, they were applying constraints to the underlying companies like the U.S. energy sector that made the entire size of the pie shrink. So their competitors also don't earn any better returns because their competitors are also invested in the same sector. But BlackRock managing $10 trillion, or State Street and Vanguard, add that to the list, it's over $20 trillion, had the power to shape the directions of entire industries. And so they were able to win on both sides of the trade because, you know what, if everyone loses on the investing value, hey, everyone loses equally. But 
for them, it's a good marketing strategy. So they were able to raise more funds and generate more fees. And, and the one way you could see this most clearly is actually the fact that the same ESG standard they apply to the American companies like Exxon or Chevron, they do not apply on the other side of the world to places like PetroChina. So you would think that if addressing shared global climate change was such an important intention for any company, they would apply those standards globally. After all, it's global climate change, right? Well, it turns out that if they did apply those standards to PetroChina, they wouldn't be able to do business in China anymore, and they'd lose a big fee stream, a big revenue stream for their business. So that's why I joke around, you know, BlackRock's mantra is often ESG for thee, China for me. They win on both sides of the trade, and, and you know, that's fine for them building their business model, but I think part of the problem, part of the solution to a market problem is a market solution. And so that's why I decided to found Strive and say that, you know what, we're going to do things differently. We're going to unambiguously stand for the voice of the everyday citizen. We're going to unambiguously stand for a voice in America's energy companies and, and, and really all companies' boardrooms, saying that we want you to focus on excellent products and services over any political agenda. And for the clients who want to deliver that message with their capital, we're here as an option. And by the way, there may be certain things you have to do differently, which is to say we can't build an asset management subsidiary in China because that's going to create the problem of having two masters. You can't, have a, you can't be a good fiduciary and have two masters. So Strive will never build an asset management subsidiary business in China like BlackRock has. But, you know, we're going to have to do some things differently to live, live up to our mission. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I think that is why I wanted to solve this problem through the market. I know a lot of states and, and government actors are looking at this problem, too, for good reason. It's a big problem for the American economy. It's a big problem for American democracy. But I prefer solving a market problem through the market rather than through legislation or state action whenever possible. And that's what I'm hoping to do with Strive. And by the way, we should note the Strive U.S. Energy ETF. That's already over $100 million in assets in its first week, which is uh, highly impressive. Uh, Vivek, I have to ask you, I've already seen some stuff out there in the media that uh, Strive and, and yourself are, uh, you know, quote-unquote anti-environment or your climate change deniers and those sorts of things. Do you, do you want to respond to any of that? Yeah, I think it's preposterous, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, because I actually think bringing more energy production to the United States is actually the cleaner thing to do. In a certain sense, our reason for doing this is because we think U.S. energy companies are more successful. But when U.S. energy companies produce less oil and gas, Russia picks up the slack. China picks up the slack. That's more methane leakage. Methane is 80 times more harmful for global warming than is a unit of carbon dioxide. And it's not like they're doing methane instead of carbon dioxide. It's both. It's methane leakage in addition to carbon dioxide production. So I think the idea that this is an anti-environmental message is actually false. In a certain sense, we think it's actually going to have a positive externality even for the environment. It's going to have a positive externality for our culture, creating greater unity rather than division in our society. And, and actually, actually last when I read some of these articles, uh, I, read, I read an article someone forwarded me a couple of days ago, which sort of uh, referred to Strive as the so-called, and then it puts it in air quotes, anti-woke fund. <laughs> Which is really funny. I was wondering, who's calling it anti-woke? We've never called it that. <laughs> Stripe never called it that. I've never called it that. So it, it, they decided that they were going to call it anti-woke, put in air quotes, and then say so-called anti-woke, as though they were jabbing fun at the name selection. So, you know, I, I think, I think the, the nature of modern media is what it is. But at the end of the day, I think people today are smart enough to, to be trained over the last decade to know that they should figure out the facts for themselves rather than just take it uh, through whatever filtered media they get their news. But at the end of the day, on the flip side, I'm actually really grateful for the broad reception that we had last week across CNBC to CNN to Fox to Fox Business to The Wall Street Journal to Bloomberg. You know, I think it was it, was, it started a conversation. And I think that's the most important thing we can be doing in this moment right now is 
moving beyond our culture of fear, where for a while in the business world, you couldn't talk about stakeholder capitalism or ESG without adopting the BlackRock, Larry Fink perspective, or you were at risk of, of cancellation in the economy. I think one of the things that we've been able to contribute to quickly is at least opening up those lines of communication. Not everyone has to agree with us. Of course not. <laughs> we live in a diverse democracy, and that's a good thing. In diverse capital markets, that's a good thing. But we do need to be able to debate these ideas freely and in the open. And I think as long as we're getting there, we're getting both the economy and our politics to a better place. And I'm proud to say that I think Strive is playing our small little role in making that happen. One thing I'm curious about, I know the goal for Strive is to grow assets to compete with a big three. In order to really start making a difference here, is there sort of a minimum asset level you need to achieve to, to, to move the needle? Like how big do you need to get to start making a difference in corporate boardrooms? I mean, I think, I think in a small way, we're already beginning to make a difference. We started a conversation in the energy conference last week. We actually, I think, have, have accounted, in my, it's my opinion, that we have been responsible for some of the changes in BlackRock's own behavior we have seen in recent months. I mean, it was after Stride's debut that BlackRock came out and said that they wanted to support fewer climate-related resolutions later this year. They have actually, they reached out to us last week asking for our shareholder proposals, the model shareholder proposals for the energy sector that I unveiled last week. This morning, uh, we said that it is our goal to exceed the AUM of BlackRock's U.S. Energy Index Fund. That's IYE, and that's about, you know, it's something on the order of a little over $2 billion in AUM. I think the relevant threshold is not necessarily getting to $10 trillion, which is the scale of BlackRock. Sure, that would be nice, but that's going to take time to do. But I think the relevant threshold is doing what we did this week, taking off on an abnormal trajectory. Over $100 million in the first week, as you said, that makes this the fastest non-seeded ETF launch of the year. What that does is that sends a signal to boardrooms. It sends a signal to energy companies in their boardrooms saying that, you know what, this is where the puck is going. And if you want to go the way of the dodo, maybe you look in the rearview mirror to the ESG era of the last five years. What we're bringing to the table isn't an anti-ESG voice. It is a post-ESG voice. It is where the future is heading. And I think our momentum in getting off the ground and the sheer level of interest we've seen, I mean, it was small dollar size average trades, as far as we know, that drove that result. That suggests that it's the everyday citizen and grassroots support that's saying that we're ready for something new. And I think that that arms the energy company executives and their board members to say that, you know what, this is where the puck is going. And we're going to skate in the direction of the future rather than just driving with our eye in the rearview mirror of ESG. And once we demonstrate that kind of change in the U.S. energy sector, I think there will be now a mandate then and, and standing for us to bring that kind of change to every sector, not just the U.S. energy sector. Vivek, on that note, just a couple minutes left here in terms of where the future is heading, where the puck is going. I know Strive does have several other ETF filings out there. Are you able to talk just generally about the overall future ETF roadmap here? What should we expect from Strive moving forward? Yes, I'm not going to be able to, for, for, for all kinds of boarding reasons, get into the specifics of, of exact products, but you're asking at a general level. So, so at a general level, look, our MO is representing a different voice to corporate America, not any specific sector, but across corporate America as a whole, demanding that companies focus on excellent products and services exclusively over any other agenda, including these social and political agendas. And so at the end of the day, that's a shareholder voice question. That's a shareholder vote question. And most asset managers, they try to compete with each other on the axis of risk, return, and fee. I'm not familiar with an asset manager like ourselves, for example, that's kind of taken this different approach that said that, you know what, that's not the main axis we want to compete on, risk, return, or fee. 
Let's hold those variables constant, more or less, and instead focus on bringing that different voice and vote to the table. And that's about doing two things. One is representing the voice of the everyday citizen, or at least many everyday citizens whose voices aren't represented. That's really important because if you're the capital owner, you better make sure that the voice you want represented on behalf of your dollars is indeed the voice that's being represented on behalf of your dollars. That's part of what Strive's bringing to the table. But the other piece of this is it's at least my view that this can actually help unlock value, can help grow the size of the pie to say that when companies are focused on exclusively providing products and services for profit rather than on other social agendas, sectors of our economy are themselves more successful. The energy sector is one example, but there are others too. I think it's true for consumer products companies. I think it's true for companies in most sectors. And at the end of the day, we hope that that unleashes both the power of the everyday citizen and their voice, but also the power of our economy in growing the overall size of the pie itself. And we think that's something that hopefully lifts everyone up, not just strive. So at a high level, uh, this is just the beginning. This is the first step. It's the first milestone of our journey. It was an important one. You know, getting off the ground the way we did in week one, I'm, I'm gratified and yeah, I'm really just grateful to the everyday citizens who supported us in that first week to get off the ground the way we did. That was remarkable, but it's still just the first step of a much, much longer journey. And I'm looking forward to what's ahead. Well, Vivek, best of luck to you on that journey. I know I'll certainly be fascinated to watch how everything unfolds here, but best of luck to you. And thanks for joining me this week. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Vivek Ramaswamy, co-founder of Strive Asset Management. Finding innovative strategies for you and your clients is what we do at Pacer ETFs. One of our newest ETFs, ticker ODDS, is the only ETF that gives investors exposure to online gambling, esports, and video game development. If you're interested in the future of digital entertainment, odds may be the three-legged strategy for you. Visit PacerETFs.com odds for more information. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Andrew Beer, founder and managing member of Dynamic Beta Investments. He's also co-portfolio manager on two ETFs offered through IM Global Partner, the IMGP DBI Managed Future Strategy ETF, ticker symbol DBMF, and the IMGP DBI Hedge Strategy ETF, ticker DBEH. And Andrew is now on the line with me from New York. Andrew, great having you back on the podcast. Uh, Nate, thank you so much for having me on. All right, so look, let's uh, jump right in here. Your Managed Future Strategy ETF. In my opinion, this is one of the ETFs of the year so far, uh, up over uh, 20%. And I think more importantly, it's helping raise some awareness around the potential benefits of owning things other than just stocks and bonds in a portfolio. So let's maybe take this in pieces. First, why don't you uh, explain the ETF itself, so what it holds, uh, the underlying investment process, et cetera. And then I do want to talk more broadly about uh, managed future strategies in a portfolio. But start by explaining the ETF. Of course. So, so you know, we have, um, I mean, if, if you had to use three words to describe what we do, and this is going to sound a little bit strange when you're talking about a, 
a liquid alternative ETF. Uh, but our, our approach is simple is better. And, you know, the, the key in hedge funds, I've been in the hedge fund industry for almost 30 years, started hedge funds and, and been focused on, on, you know, really one mission over the past nearly 15 years, which is how do you get the diversification benefits, but in a client-friendly package like an ETF. And, you know, what we do in DBMF is we just look at 20 of the largest managed futures hedge funds. These guys, you know, these are the luminaries of the industry, the guys who uh, some of them have become billionaires uh, on the back of these of of the businesses that they've built. And, you know, what we're really just trying to do is identify their trades, what they're doing. And if we can do that and copy it cheaply, um, you get this really unusual combination of being able to not just match what the hedge funds do, but actually outperform them, but in an ETF with low fees and daily liquidity. So, you know, what we're really just trying to do is bring the best of what hedge funds do to uh, a broader investor base, but in a very, very client-friendly form. In terms of identifying those hedge fund trades, talk more about the replication. Like, how are you doing that? If you can try to put this into a layman's terms. I know we can get into the quant weeds a little bit, but just high level, what are you doing? Yeah, I, I think the question about the quant weeds is really important because I think most people that I talk to really want to understand this from the perspective of, you know, I'm an REA, I'm an allocator. How do I think about this in the context of my portfolios? Um, so what we do is basically we have our own quantitative models. They are basically very, very elaborate risk management models. And, you know, if you walked into any hedge fund or investment bank even, you know, the, they, they run these risk models that are very, very good at, at determining what's driving the returns of a portfolio. If a guy walks in saying he's a small cap value investor and you run his numbers through one of these risk engines and it says he's 99% correlated, correlated to NASDAQ, you know, you've got some obvious questions to answer. The, the most sophisticated forms of it basically say, you know, we know these guys make their money in three, four, five or six big trades at any given point in time. And what the models do, they look at really recent history, the past couple of weeks, you know, how their portfolios have been going up and down and say, you know, what's been driving it? What combination of, say, crude oil and the 10-year treasury and the Japanese yen and the S&P 500, what combination of these big markets has been driving returns? And it turns out, you know, now having done this for a very, very long time, it gives you an extremely accurate read as to how these portfolios are positioned. And then what it basically opens up is instead of then investing with hedge funds with high fees or investing in a lot of individual mutual funds that pursue the same kinds of strategies, you can simply just copy the positions cheaply and at the end of the day do a lot better. In terms of copying those positions, why use futures contracts? So I realize futures may be optimal for uh, some asset classes, but if you're owning, say, stocks or even some commodities, why not use ETFs, for example? So in, in the case of managed futures hedge funds, uh, which is where we're starting, um, you know, they, they invest across four asset classes, uh, commodities, equities, currencies, and rates. And the reason they're called managed futures is because futures contracts are their investment weapon of choice. And the reason is that it's you can go seamlessly long and short, and you can do it with, with minimal friction and trading costs. So if they decide that they want to short the 10-year treasury, the most efficient way to do it is to simply short the, the, the 10-year treasury. And that's a way of betting on rising rates. Or if they want to buy, um, uh, get a long exposure to crude oil, they just do it through a futures contract. So, you know, so so futures contracts are basically the most efficient way to get exposure to these big asset classes. And 
from a replication perspective, since they themselves are using these instruments, we simply want to use the same instruments as well. So in terms of what's driving returns right now, talk about the current positioning. What are the top holdings? And I'd be interested in hearing what do they tell you about the current market environment? So managed futures is interesting in that that it's not really – the the whole idea in – of managed futures is that is that we humans are very emotional and sometimes we don't respond to new information and sometimes we overreact to it. And so uh, what managed futures funds are very good at telling you are, are really some of the underlying currents in the market and really interpreting what, what the funds are seeing other people do. Um, in this year, there have been three big trades. I mean, these guys through the middle of, I guess, through June, uh, uh, the strategies on average were up about 20%. Um, the ETF was up a bit more than that uh, because, again, with lower fees, you tend to outperform. Um, and, and it was really, a, it was on the back of three trades. They were long oil at the right time when oil went up, then they were short treasuries when rates were going up, and then they were long uh, the U.S. dollar against the Japanese yen when the Japanese yen was going down. It's, it's, not, it's not, you know, a, a million different trades that are contributing to it, and that's always been the big truth uh, about hedge funds. When I've been asked about changes in the portfolio, it's been interesting because at the end of June, I would have said if there was one word to describe the portfolio, it was inflation. And today, I would say if there's one word to describe the portfolio, it's recession. And um, so the portfolios will change over time. They're actively managed. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time trying to interpret what we're seeing and, and potentially what it means for our clients. Andrew, taking a, a step back, I have to ask you, you launched this ETF in May of 2019, and best that I can tell, this ETF never had more than about $65 million in assets prior to this year, which isn't bad. That, that's certainly a healthy foundation. But, you know, you have back-end operating costs and those sorts of things. I'm curious, was it difficult at all for you to stick with this? Because I've seen so many examples of ETFs that closed only to see the strategy work really well after that, right? Uh, some ETFs just closed too soon. And now I look at DBMF, you're off to the races here, well over $400 million in assets. Can you just talk about the, uh, the ride here? Sure. So, so we're, we're, we're incredibly different than most ETF uh, product managers in that we've only launched two, and we may or may not do a third over time. Uh, you know, my, my whole ethos, having come from the hedge fund industry, is you just don't launch products if you're not sure they're going to work. And, and I think the, you know, as in the ETF world, the... Ben Johnson from, from Morningstar had this great expression of the spaghetti cannon. People just shoot things against the wall and see what works. Um, when we launched DBMF, I mean, we, we thought that we had come up with the, the, the best solution for literally anybody out there who has an e-portfolio. That, you know, when they're thinking about the 2020s, we think they're thinking about a couple different things. One is, how do I diversify out of, outside of 60-40 portfolios and not damage myself in the process, not get blown up on, on funds that don't do what they're supposed to do. And, and ultimately, what we think is people are looking to outperform a benchmark. And we think we have the best uh, the mousetrap for that. We understood that this was going to be a, a long, drawn-out education process. And that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. And, but we think ultimately what's going to happen, if you look at managed futures ETFs overall, the space is about a billion dollars in total, which is between 0.01% and 0.02% of the overall ETF world. It should be 100 times that. And so uh, we were very, very fortunate in our partners uh, who invested us in 2018. They're the ones who launched the ETFs. And we shared a common view. This is a 10-year a, a exercise in basically 
fundamentally transforming how the ETF world looks at what, unfortunately, I think is called the liquid alternative space, because I don't like that term. Um, but basically, really just, just, just try to educate and talk to the 99.99% of people who have never touched this um, uh, as an asset class, yet it's an asset class that if you start thinking about diversification, it probably has more diversification bang for the buck than anything else. So we're trying to find a way to help people bring that into their portfolios. By the way, I love that stat you gave. I saw that you tweeted out a couple of weeks ago that managed futures ETFs do only account for between 0.01% and 0.02% of all ETF assets. You said that's the one statistic that gets you out of bed every morning, <laughs> which I, I love. And by the way, I, I mentioned earlier, in my opinion, I think this has to be one of the ETFs of the year so far. In, in listeners, that's not investment advice. As always, do your own homework. But, uh, Andrew, I saw Morningstar just put a fifth star on this, correct? This is now a five-star Morningstar fund? Yeah, that's, and that's, that's unprecedented in, uh, for a managed futures ETF. Um, and, you know, I think, I think like, there, there are the – we can talk a lot about the liquid alt space, but, but um, the only way that we found to consistently outperform a, a broad index of hedge funds over time is by you replicate the whole bunch of them, but you do it before fees. And, you know, just like the ethos of an S&P 500 ETF with a five basis point expense ratio just tends to do better than all those active management products through lower fees, that's, that's our, our whole ethos. And so our goal is we're incredibly proud to have gotten the fifth star, but now our next goal is we want to keep that star, um, uh, keep, keep all five stars over the next five years. Andrew, just a few minutes left here. You, you mentioned earlier focusing on education in this space and to close I'd love to have you just really crystallize the overall idea here. And the way that I'll frame this for you is obviously DBMF is performing well this year. We know that it's clearly been additive to a portfolio in 2022. But if we were to zoom out more broadly, why own a managed future strategy? Or even if you want to step back from that, why own any hedge fund type strategy? Well, I think so. I think it's pretty clear at this point that I think everybody who builds these portfolios has kind of a common goal, which is we want to deliver the best risk-adjusted returns for a client's particular risk profile. Properly implemented, um, hedge funds can be very, very valuable additions to that portfolio. Um, the liquid alts world has, has, and it's something I'll be talking a lot about more, I think this space is an embarrassment. I mean, it's the past 10 years, the space has done 1.6 or 1.7% per annum after maybe 200 basis points in fees. And, and I think there are, there are a lot of structural problems with that. I, I, think, I think part of the problem is that the way people talk about these products, they emphasize complexity. They want you to think that, that, that they're one guy out of 10 products that they've launched. The one product that's doing well is the one that's somehow going to continue to do well over the next five years. And, and I, think, I think in reality, for people that I talk to who are sitting on the other side of the table, they, they want to have more of a conversation with people about what it is they're trying to accomplish and, and to draw on the expertise of people who really know the hedge fund space and, and, and the usage and, and ETF version of it. How do they accomplish their objectives? And then how do they explain it to people? And I think the language around that needs to be much cleaner and simpler and has to have um, uh, tie into the way people talk to each other and the way they talk to their clients. And, and it's, it's, it's a long process. I learn a tremendous amount every week when I get on these calls or I do webinars um, uh, with people. But I think, I think ultimately it's, it's, it's not about building the coolest whiz-bang products. It's about solving problems 
for people on the other side of the table. And that's that's really always been our ethos uh, since we got into the space. A hundred percent. And I thought you did a fantastic job with the language this week. You know, I, I, I agree with you. I think this space just needs to be made much more approachable to the average advisor, average investor out there. And that always starts with education. But Andrew, great to reconnect. Congratulations on the success of DBMF so far this year, and best of luck to you moving forward. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Nate. It's great to be on. That was Andrew Beer, founder and managing member of Dynamic Beta Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Goldman Sachs Asset Management's ETFs, you can visit gsam.com slash ETFs. Next week, I'll be joined by Bond Blocks' Joanne Bianco. She's going to walk through their lineup of sector-specific high-yield bond ETFs. And then 21 Share CEO Hanny Rashwan will talk crypto and crypto ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.